0: I'll make it in bite-sized pieces that you can digest. So John 7, 14 uh, through 36. As we come to our verses uh, this morning, it's interesting if you just scan down your Bible, and most of your Bibles will do this. I know most of you use the ESV, but every Bible does this. You're going to see that... This section gets divided into three sections, and there shouldn't be a title at 14 because it really started at the beginning, but Joel only took us to 13 last week, and so there are these three sections. And this whole chapter, uh, you might want to make a note in your Bibles, if it's not there already, something that it falls under the Feast of Booths, or also known as the Feast of Tabernacle. So everything we're gonna see, we saw last week, this week, and next week is when Jesus went to the Feast of Booths um, and that's what's taking place. Um, and it's interesting because the Feast of Booths is a, a reminder of when God delivered Israel out of Egypt. And of course, it, there's a message in it for us. The, uh, these feasts, this one and other feasts uh, they were a foreshadowing of the Messiah, of Christ's coming, and really of the work that he would do for the salvation of man. And so as the Feast of Booths spoke of when God took them out of Egypt, and of course you can imagine they, they lived in makeshift tents and stuff in the wilderness, that's the idea here is, and, and that would happen in Israel. It happens to this day in Israel. It happens in Israel. If you go to heavily Orthodox Jewish areas in New York, uh, you will see the Orthodox Jews. Well, you won't see it because they probably don't want you to see it, but they will make little huts and stuff in their backyards for these eight days that this feast would last. It started on a Sabbath. It ended on a Sabbath. And so it's a great time. And I I want to read you what gotquestions.org says about it. By the way, that is a website you should know about. It says, "...with the influx of people coming to Jerusalem at that time..." We can only imagine what the scene must have been like, thousands upon thousands of people coming together to remember and to celebrate God's deliverance and his provision, all living in temporary shelters and booths as part of the requirement of the feast. During, that, during the eight-day period, so many sacrifices were made that it required all 24 divisions of priests to be present to assist in the sacrificial duty. So I love us as best as we can, and it's impossible to do that, but just try to put yourself in a scene where you have a city and it just blows up. It's a bad example, but I'll use Sturgis as an example. Sturgis is not a big city, but you know during the summer when it's become this great big motorcycle rally, it grows to like five to 600,000 people. And it's just entirely different. Then everybody goes away and it's all quiet again, you know. But that's what it would have been like at Jerusalem and so forth. And with the Temple Mount and everything, there would just be thousands of people that would make a pilgrimage to the city and they would enter into this incredible celebration for a week long. Now, the sections are this. Verses 14 to 24 we'll take. It has to do with Jesus teaching in the temple during the Feast of Booths. 25 to 31 are some people wondering if he is the Christ, and then 32 to 36, they seek to arrest Jesus, and he tells them that I'm not going to be with you much longer. So that's what we're going to look at. So look at verse 14 with me, if you will. Verse 14 says, about the middle of the feast, and remember, Jesus didn't go up when his brothers wanted him to go up to make, you know, to be seen, he went up in the middle of the feast when it, when... It was his time to go up. Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowds answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and that's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. If, one, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgments." And so going up to the temple at the halfway point of the feast, Jesus starts to teach. Now, let me show you some slides here. Okay, this is what the temple mound looks like today. That's a mosque there. And so the buildings in the first part are not the temple uh, mound. The next part back is what they call the temple mound. And just to give you an illustration, one of our Calvary pastors was there one time during a Muslim celebration. That is under the control of the Muslims, by the way. There were over 60,000 people on that temple mount. So that, you can't appreciate how big it is until you go there, but it is a gigantic space and one day a temple is gonna be rebuilt there. And I'm gonna show you some other pictures, probably that inner part of the temple. So this is what the temple looked like during Herod's time. And so the Holy of Holies and stuff would be that portion right in the middle. Um, To the right is the Gentile court and so forth. But that is what encompassed that temple mound that if you ever go to Israel, you'll go on. And the next slide, I just want, and I realize you can't really read these very well, can you? Oh, can you? Okay, good. Because I just thought, you know, I have to, they are what they are. But what I want to see is the white square where it says the Gentile court. That is probably where at times Jesus would teach. And so he goes up there now, and it is packed with people that are making sacrifices, that are worshiping God, that are celebrating this eight day celebration of what God had done, you know. And so let's move on, okay? So going up there, he taught the people who he was. He taught them what he'd do. He obviously, part of his teaching, I think anytime he taught, was how to know God. And that was very much of his time on this earth. Um, He came to uh, suffer and die, but he came to teach us as well. And so this is another one of those examples where he is going to teach. And, and notice as before, when he taught, you see this often in scriptures, look in your text, it says, they marveled at his teaching. That's what the NIV uses. That's a great word. It, it means this, if you look it up in the Greek, it has the idea of they had admiration for his teaching. They, they had wonder for his teaching and not wonder like questioning it so much as they just couldn't believe what they're hearing. Uh, they were amazed, astonished, even surprised is the idea. And I just thought, you guys, isn't that a good reminder for you and I who know Christ? Lord, give us that wonder, give us that amazement every time we either hear Your Word taught, or we get into Your Word. Guys, listen—if you've known the Lord for a long time, it is easy to forget that, isn't it? I remember when I first came to the Lord. Before I came to the Lord, I, my, the guy that led me, to the Lord, said, "Just start reading the Gospel of John every day." I did. And after it came to the Lord, my fondest memories was living in Spokane, and I managed a warehouse for the Salvation Army, and I'd get up early in the morning, Wink would still be in bed, and I'd go out with my living Bible, the green one, some of you know what I'm talking about, and I'd have my coffee, and I'd sit in my living room, and I'd just read out of the living Bible, and it was just so wonderful to me, and I would just pray as I went down to that warehouse and worked and so forth, but boy, may we have that. And and notice when it says, the Jews therefore marveled, remember in this section we're in, when it says the Jews, it means the Jewish religious leaders that were against Jesus. So here, it doesn't mean the Jews in general. The crowd's there, and they're going to come into it in just a minute. But it means they marveled at that too. And they asked themselves, notice, how can he have this learning? How can he teach this way? we know he has never studied. In other words, they knew he had never been in one of the rabbinical schools like the Jews would do to study. Listen to what Edwin Bloom says about that. His teaching was learned and spiritual, spiritually penetrating, yet he had never been a disciple in a, any rabbatic, rabbinical school. They wondered, how could this be possible? And the idea there is this, there would be these rabbis they would follow, but if you were going to follow a rabbi, you would attach yourself to that rabbi for a minimum of three years to as much as 10 years, and you would become his disciple, and you would learn. And they knew Jesus hadn't attached himself to any one of our rabbis that we follow. So how is he able to teach like he's teaching? In other words, the idea there is how can he have this grasp of God's word that they didn't even have? That's why they're marveling, right? Of course, you know the answer to that, don't you? If you've known the Lord for a while, he's God. <laughs> you know, he came from the Father. It's his word, you know? It's it's like, well, I find that the older I get, sometimes I don't have a grasp of uh, my words, I was reminded this morning of, Karen told me one time I came to pray with her on Monday, my day off, and I said, I'm sorry, I don't ever remember, I don't remember that, you know? And so it just proved to you, and you know this, that that Jesus is Lord, not Scott, okay? <laughs> I was joking with her. I said, the worst thing is when people come up to me now, after I'm just 41 years of ministry now, and they come up and say, oh, remember when you married us? And I kind of, I kind of, I go into God is timeless at that point because I say yes, but I'm also thinking the minute they walk away, I'm going to turn to my wife and go, did I marry them? And she goes, yes, you did. So where there's no time and space, I didn't really lie because I go there and you understand what I do? Yeah. I do the same with baptisms. You know, they just, everyone is precious, trust me, but I don't remember them all now. So anyway it's your fault. You've, you've, messed, you've messed up my memory. But notice also, you guys, this, that they marvel at Jesus' teaching. Again, we should marvel at it. Every time we get into it, marvel at it. But what do we read when Peter and John one time in Acts 4.13 face the Jewish leaders? Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, the scriptures say, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus, see. And the good word to you and I is that that's what God can do to us. I've said this before. I never forget the day my my wife, not my mom, my wife had out my report cards and she's sharing them with the kids. And I graduated with a D average when I graduated from Ballard. Now, I had plenty of credits. I just didn't like high school. If high school could have been a shop, I would have loved high school. And trust me, I took more shops than you could shake a stick at. But the day she showed them all the D's I got, and they looked at me like, because I would push them. I said, no, it's different with you. You know the Lord, and you got to get better grades. So, you know, it just wasn't going to fly with me, you know. You know, as parents, we know how to get out of that. But I want to remind you of three things here, you guys. One, that God's word is truly above every other book, every other writing. We hear constantly that it's being put down and stuff. I saw the other day, I saw something the other day by a scientist that's an he was he's an atheist and he finally came to the conclusion that scientifically, even though he's not a believer, he says scientifically you cannot say there is not a higher being or something like that. You can't say it. There is not somebody that created. He didn't say God, but he says, scientifically, you are on totally weak ground. If you look at the evidence from science, you have to conclude someone has something to do with this order that we live in. So that's one thing. Number two, the unlearned can become learned when they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, watch that and be careful. You could know a lot about the Bible. You could know a lot about biblical history. But you're still not learned in the sense that the Lord wants you to learn unless you have a relationship with him. But when you do, you can learn. And I bet you a bunch of you in this room would say amen to that, like I would say amen to that. I hated school. When I finally went to Bible school, I said, my goal is to get at least a three-point average, and I did because I knew I had it in me. And ever since then, I always tell people, listen, you're going you're gonna to study all your life. The other day, my wife had a box. She goes, I want you to go through this box. I go, what is it? She goes, that's all your sermons you typed out before you started using the computer. You know, I'm torn because I know a lot of them aren't very good. <laughs> but what am I going to do with all those sermons? You know, I, I'd like to think my kids will cherish them and put them in a volume. I'm, I'm going to throw them away. Okay, so anyway... <laughs> Yeah, here's the only sermons we need right here, okay? But anyway, then the last thing, above everything, we need to seek the wisdom from above God's wisdom. That's what this is telling us by Jesus marveling. And that's what happens. We want to honor God's word and seek that wisdom from above. And so Jesus answers their question, right? His teaching has come from God. That's what he says in this passage. And it wasn't his own, but it was the Father's. And notice that they truly... Uh, if they were truly about doing God's will, he says, you would know these things. You would know that Jesus, that he said he was from God and they were from God. And that shows you they didn't have a relationship. Another great reminder. We know there are people in this world that are very religious. They go to church all the time. They have no relationship with Christ. It's not personal. It's Sunday. And so that is a very possible thing. And notice along with not wanting to know God. I think there's this kind of downward thing that happens here. If a person doesn't want to know God, then they're going to do this next. They're going to reject God. And then they're going to be, like he says here, they're going to be about self-glory, and they're going to be about desire for power and authority in their own life. And that's what Jesus says in this passage, that if that's the case, that's what you're about. And again, let me say this, you guys. We all need to resist the temptation to be about our own glory. Say amen. Oh, gee, come on. You got to say amen because we all fall into that trap all the time. You know, we, we want attention. We want the glory. And you've got to realize, no, Lord, you, you take the glory. You get the glory. I think John the Baptist said it best when he said he Say it, he must increase and I must decrease. That's the principle. Matthew 6, Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Always pray that way. You, how do you pray? Well, you pray if it's a situation for a door to open, a healing and everything else. Pray for that to happen, but always pray, and Father, your will be done. And make sure when you say that, you're ready for his will to be done. Because if it's not what you want, your will, you'll get disappointed. But you have to be at the point where you can say, God, let your will be done in this situation. And then you got to let him do his will. And anybody besides me in this room, any ever prayed like 100,000 prayers and you wanted to go one way and they never went that way? See what I mean? But it's good, it breaks you, it molds you, it shapes you. It makes you just say, Lord, your will be done. And so that's an important thing. And, uh, and verse 18 says that in, we are to seek that God be glorified. Show people God, tell people about God. And to prove his point, they were about power in themselves. Notice what he, in verse 19, then he, he goes and he says this in verse 19. We already read it. He says, Has not Moses given you law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? See? And so we can think that it was common knowledge that um, the, all, everybody knew the Jewish officials were seeking to kill Jesus. But not all the common people knew that. They didn't realize that they were seeking to kill him. Some of them did, but not all of them did. And that's why, notice what it said there, when they said, you have a demon, you're kind of thinking, what's all about? Well, they're thinking, you're nuts. Are you demon possessed or something? We're not trying to kill you. So that's kind of the sense of going on there. And they said that, he says that because he says, why do you seek to kill me? And they were seeking to kill him. The leaders broke the law in so many different ways. But here Jesus, Jesus is specifically talking about they're seeking to kill him, and that's the sixth commandment, thou shall not murder. Isn't that interesting? The hypocrisy of their faith, if you want to call it that, that they are saying, we are our God, we know God, we, we obey the Ten Commandments, and yet here we are, the leaders of a nation, and we want to kill this guy, which is against the law. And so he's talking about that. And when he healed, what this is talking about when he says, I did one thing, it's when in John 5, we are there, remember, and he healed that man at the pool of Bethesda. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he even was calling his God his father and making himself equal with God. But they wanted to kill him because he did something on the Sabbath. And here, what is he saying? He says, well, you do something on the Sabbath. Look at verse 21 again. He says, Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If, one, if, one on the, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? See? And so first understand the Levitical law said this, you guys. It said that if a baby is born, it is to be a baby boy. I hope I didn't have to explain that. Um, th- that baby boy needed to be circumcised on the eighth day. And I'm going to say this because I think most of you know it. Do you know why the eighth day, one of the reasons why the eighth day? It's because do you know the vitamin K in a baby which clots the blood is at its highest level on the eighth day? Isn't that interesting? Don't tell me there's no God. <laughs> you know, the Jews just thought, oh, eight days later, we got to do this. And science now has shown that on the eighth day, that vitamin K in a baby boy is at a high level. So when the baby boy is circumcised, the blood will clot. And so they had to do that. Okay. And so on the eighth day, if a baby was born on a Sabbath, eight days later would be the next Sabbath. They were to circumcise. See? And they didn't have any problem with that. Jesus didn't have any problem with that because that was to say you couldn't do, that was a work and you can't work. See what, it, it just got all messed up. And so Jesus saying, if you do that on the Sabbath, but you now have a problem with me making an entire man's body whole. See, see how crazy it is that they wouldn't want that to happen. And so they were angry enough because of that healing that they wanted to kill him. And the Jewish leaders had deemed certain things that were working on the Sabbath and other things weren't. But God's word doesn't do that so often. So often their laws about what constitutes work on the Sabbath, you will not find Scripture teaching that. Okay, and it still goes to this day. And so Jesus says, ends this section... Do not judge by appearance, but judge with the right judgment. Look at the, uh, the NLT. Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. And I love this. When Samuel went to anoint David, he didn't know at time it was David, but when Samuel went to anoint David as the next king of Israel, it's in 1 Samuel 16. He went before Jesse, and Jesse brought the sons by. And Eliab was one of Jesse's sons, and he, he thought for sure it's him. But it says this in verse 7, this is the Lord's anointing, but he was wrong. And this is where we, he says this, do not look on his appearance or on his height or statue because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And you know that verse, don't you? That's an awesome verse, isn't it? I, I think you always should be applying that two ways. One, apply it to yourself. You know, God looks at you on the inward, not the outward. Remember that. God knows your heart. You know, don't, don't condemn yourself for something you think God's upset about, but you know where your heart was at. The second thing, always use that in thinking of other people. You know, at this point in my life, in my ministry, I just realized uh, not too long ago, I said, you know, I've dealt with so many situations, so many problems, so many people, hundreds and hundreds of them now, maybe thousands now. I've learned this. When you deal with a situation, no matter what's going on, try to remember and see what's going, what what has happened in that person's life. You know, so often you talk about something, but you don't know the other stuff. And it just changes your whole attitude to accept. In some cases, if their outward behavior is driving you nuts, you just receive it. Because you realize that person has a story. There is a story in that person that I probably don't know about. And so that was so important. Another example is Matthew 7, 3, and 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And we understand that passage, don't we? Why are we pointing the finger at people for something minor? Why are we critical of something minor, some appearance, an outward thing, when in our own life there's some glaring issues that we're just flat out ignoring? See? In other words, don't do it. And you should be thinking about what the things in your life. And and again, we can understand both of these examples, and we need to admit at times... We do judge by appearance, and we fail to make correct and right judgments. And we can obey most Scripture, but we, we can have a blind eye to parts of Scripture. Amen? Say it. It's good to confess. You know, it is. You know, we all do it. You know, we'll be so loving at sometimes, and then we'll just have wrath at times, you know, in our attitude, if not, you know, outwardly. And we shouldn't do that. We need to be careful of doing that. We can obey most scripture, but have this blind eye, We or we can judge, but what we're looking at is the outside, and we fail to let God, listen to this, we fail to let God show us what the physical eye can't see, see, we are doing exactly what the Pharisee did, everything essential, our, our senses, and, you know, what I can feel, and that type of thing, and Only God can and His Holy Spirit can allow us to see beyond that. And sometimes I'm not saying, you know, we can know everything that's going on in a person's life, but we can have the sense to be careful. There's stuff going on that I might not know about. And we all have blind spots. And we can judge on a superficial level. And we can miss and ignore what Scripture is saying. And so we want the heart of God. Amen? Amen. All right, let's move on. So verse 25 Notice what he says. He says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ comes, no one will know where he comes from. And so there were many there, if he's up on the Temple Mount in that area that I told you about, thousands and thousands of people, I don't know how many were listening and all, but many of them were wondering, is this the Christ? They understood. They, 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 the teachings alone were enough, but these people also knew all the miracles he'd had done. And they're saying, is this the Christ? Is this the anointed one? Because the L- Jewish leaders weren't doing anything about it. He's up on the Temple Mount. And they're not doing anything about it. So in other words, what did I just show you here? That some of the multitude didn't know they were seeking to kill him. Some of the multitude did. And so they couldn't figure out why they're not doing anything as he taught that day in the temple. And so they wondered, do they think he's the Messiah too? But knowing where Jesus was from, Nazareth, the city of Nazareth, made them question if he truly was the Messiah. See, again, they're having a hard time getting beyond as you and I would. If you grew up in a family of boys or there's some girls in there as well and your older brother turned out to be the Messiah, that'd be a tough fish to swallow, right? I mean, I don't need to develop that. You could just understand that. But they also had a lot of evidence that, okay, boy, brother Jesus is a little different. Brother, you know, a little different like that. And so he had come that he wasn't just a, Galilean carpenter from the city of Nazareth. And when it says, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, let me explain that to you. Because during this time, some believed that until the Messiah appeared and the Messiah would just appear miraculously out of nowhere, that he would be unknown. That's what some believe, and that's what that statement's about. And so exactly where they knew exactly where Jesus was born, didn't they? If they wanted to search it. So it shows you they weren't really searching the scriptures because it says he'd be born in Bethlehem. And that's no contradiction. He was, Joseph and Mary were from Nazareth. They had to go pay, the census required them to go to Bethlehem. That's when he was born. And then eventually he made his way back up into, after Egypt, he made his way back up into Nazareth. And so they knew that, but they didn't. That And here's an application. People can make the same mistake today. We can know all about Jesus, as verse 31 says, be aware of all the signs and miracles that he did. And yet we can get hung up on a minor detail and it keeps them from giving their heart and life to Christ. I see it all the time, all the time. People realize who he is. The evidence is so overwhelming for God and who Jesus is. But they get hung up on one thing. And I always, I know it's this. It's faith and belief. It really is. That's always the issue. The evidence is never the issue. The evidence is there. It's that willingness to take that step and have faith and believe. And then things start to happen. And so thinking they knew him, look what Jesus says in verse 28 and 29. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. um, um, But I have not come of my own accord, he who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, and for I come from him, and he sent me. And so again, what they're talking about here outwardly, um, they knew he was from Nazareth. That's what he means. You know me, but he's act- actually saying you really don't know me. You know there was a mystery of where Jesus was really from, his real origin, and that God had sent him and why he came, and that mystery um, was was a mystery to them. They didn't understand that he had come from God. Now, some did, but the majority are not seeing it at this point. And so, strikingly, he says to those who were convinced they knew God and they were doing God's will, him you do not know. You know, there's something in my brain right now that says I should say this. And I don't know if there's anybody in this room that this fits to, but if it is, then the Lord is speaking to you. Do you think you know him, but you really don't know him? Don't be afraid at any point in your life when you realize you thought one thing and now you realize something different that you repent and you confess and you say, oh my goodness, I didn't see this. And we need to understand that because that's what you have in the Jewish leaders of that day. They say, we know God. We're his representative. Look at us, right? And Jesus says here, you do not know. You do not know who God is. You do not see who I am. Verse 30, 31, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And so we already talked about that. But when Jesus... Is finally arrested, it is because his hour has come. It's very simple. Why didn't they arrest him now? Because he's in control. Absolutely in control. Nothing is going to happen that will violate God's will and the life of Christ until God deems it's time. So that's why they didn't arrest him at this time. It isn't because he tricked him or anything else. He's out in the open. You realize that? He is not hiding. You know, because he realized, I don't need to hide. I can go into the temple. I can preach boldly because it's not my time. They are not going to arrest me. And he knows they're going to arrest him, he knows how he's going to die. But it wasn't his time. That time was to come. And so now, not being that, it's a great reminder to you and I that God. God was in control of Jesus's life. And as you and I abide in him, he leads us and he knows the details of our life. You know, I, I the other day I was, I'll, be, I'll just be honest with you. Can we have some moment of honesty here for a minute? Well, of course we can. It's a church. But uh, I was at Mark's uh, dad memorial service and it was down in Evergreen Washelli, And I know Evergreen Washelli. I mean, I've got family buried there. And I've done so many services down there. Um, And so after the service was over, and it was a great service, it was Mark's dad was a wonderful man. He's got a great family. Joel did a great job. And um, afterwards, um, I had parked kind of in a weird spot. And Joel said, is that your truck down there? I said, yeah. And what I think I told them both, but between where Mark's dad is buried and my truck is where my brother is buried and so I just want to say this to you because I, my point is that we've got to keep moving on in the spite of pain. So it's the Maccabee plot. My, the Maccabee side of my family were uh, very uh, well off. And when my brother Bob died, they had a plot there and I saw all their family there and they let Bob be buried there. And there's a really nice bench. I've always remembered there's a tree and a bench and I can look at right at Bob's grave. And I was sitting there and I mean, it's been since 1974 since my brother died, but when I sit there, sometimes my emotions will seem like he must have just died recently, and I was just sobbing, be honest with you. I, I, I miss him. I never got to know him. I'm looking forward to heaven, but here's what I want you to understand. I realize I said, Lord, there is a lot of pain in our lives, right? I want Think about that. You have pain in your life. You can't camp out on that pain, you guys. It doesn't do you any good. And I'm, I'm convinced now, after all these years of knowing the Lord, that those memories and the pain they can bring up, I'm not convinced they always disappear because they could come back so real. But I think you and I, we've got to move on at times. You know what I mean? And we don't forget that. It's a part of who we are. It shapes us, it molds us, it makes us who we are. But we are not being biblical if we don't allow ourselves to, I gotta move on. And I was sitting there just realizing all the painful things I've gone through in my life. My mom's death, my dad's death, my brother's death, you know, and other things. I mean, I could tell you all the people I've buried. A pastor probably does three to one Burials versus weddings. I remember a little boy when I was on staff at Calvary Fellowship. A little boy that got leukemia and lost his life, and I was there in the house down by Fort Lawton when he passed away. And I sat with the mom. I took the mom to the funeral home to Evergreen Washelli, Wash and I helped her to so that she didn't get led astray by the funeral directors and getting stuff she didn't need. And then the funeral director wisely said, "Now listen." The boy can stay in the house this long after he passes, but this is what's going to happen. I said, okay, that's fine. It all worked out perfect. You know, and I just think of Casey, that little boy. I knew him. He was a kid that was just an amazing kid, you know? And so I've been in those situations that are painful situations, and it's not always my pain, but it's been entering into the pain of others, of you as your pastor. And so I just thought, you know, that's a great reminder, Lord that we do have pain in our life, but God is greater than our pain. Amen? I mean this, you guys. It's so important. And God wants to take us through that pain, beyond that pain. And at times, it'll seem so real. Go ahead and cry. Go ahead and mourn again. It's okay, you know? I was just glad everybody was gone and nobody came up to me seeing me sitting on this bench going, Scott, what are you doing? It would have been okay. I said, well, there's my brother's grave right there. But, you know, it is what it is. And I just, I, I think we need to know that God's in control of our lives. And when you see what's happening in your life, you know, don't demand, I need to understand. I need to know, God, what are you doing? No, just trust him. Trust him. And usually time will reveal that it was okay, okay? So 32, will finish. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, What does this man intend to go uh, that we will, where does he tend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. And so again, they were only seeing with their eyes and with their minds and they didn't really see who Jesus was. And Jesus was speaking of what was to come, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension when he would return to the Father, back to heaven. And they thought, he's thinking about this dispersion. What the dispersion was, you guys, was Jews that had scattered among the Greeks of that day. And so it it was to the Jews who had migrated into the Roman Empire, and it wasn't just Rome, the Roman Empire was huge. And they even said it was Jews that had migrated as far east to Babylon. And he says, is that what he's going to do, is go into where those... The Greek area there, and Greek doesn't mean Greece or Greek speaking, but is he going to the non-Jewish areas? See, that's what they think. But Jesus, of course, was talking about, I'm going back to the Father. And I just thought this is the perfect place to close. If the musicians, come on back up. It speaks of the time to receive Jesus is now. It really is now. I heard this week of, and last week, there were two deaths in our Puget Sound area that stuck out to me in an alarming way. And I always think when I hear these things, I bet you they didn't have a clue that this is what was going to happen. And it's just the same to us today. What is the Lord saying to you and I out of this passage of scripture? Is it something about his word and honoring his word? Was it something, is there something in your life that the Lord wanted you to hear? Listen, you are in a room full of people. I wish someday, maybe Sunday, we shouldn't teach, but it's kind of weird. Let's just all share the pain we have in our life, right? That'd be kind of weird. But I could tell you that I could talk to every single one of you, and you could tell me stories, not just one, but you could tell me hurts in your life and things that you've gone through. And maybe God is just saying to you, I know, I know what you've gone through. I know how it still affects you at time, but let me lead you and guide you.